Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheeseman, a research fellow at the Australian National University. Today I'm talking with Ken McLean, an associate professor at Clark University, about the government of mistrust, eligibility and bureaucratic power in socialist Vietnam, which he published in 2013 with University of Wisconsin Press. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. If you don't mind, I'd like to jump in at the end of the book where you write that, quote, the government of mistrust significantly hampered the efforts to build socialism in Vietnam, but ironically, it also helped to sustain them. What is this government of mistrust to which the book's title alludes, and why does it have a seemingly paradoxical relationship with state socialism in Vietnam? An excellent question. I always like beginning at the end and working backwards. At least that's what I tell my students. Uh, So now you put me in the spot. Um, Let's see. It started with a a question that I rephrased, obviously, as a statement and a conclusion. And that was, how is a a system of government and administration that seemed to work uh, so ineffectively in many respects, or it would limp along, to put it in the vernacular, yet lasted uh, right up until the present, depending on whether you consider Vietnam still socialist or not. <clears throat> Whereas many of the other, or almost all the other socialist states, uh, uh, reformed or changed into something else uh, decades ago. And it emerged out of my experience with uh, trying to actually start my research project, which I outline a bit in the preface and revisit slightly in the introduction, which was uh, the ways in which mutual mistrust is embedded in the administrative system. And this is hardly unique to Vietnam, but one of the things that made it 
curious to me was that it was sort of an operative principle. It was the default point of departure for almost all exchanges. And I came to wonder uh, how that came to be. Was it a particular cultural form and therefore in some ways unique to Vietnam or it took on a Vietnamese inflection? Or it had to do with uh, ways in which state socialism was organized. And I found a combination of both. And the title comes from the ways in which uh, the administrators and people interacting with the administrators at all different levels in Vietnam uh, sought to make these things work, that is to make government happen on the principle that uh, people were at the same time trying to make things not happen. And the kinds of what I refer to as legibility devices, which I'll expand on in a few minutes, um, were put in place as checks and balances to try and verify what information was correct, what information wasn't, what the motives were, what the motives were not. And those very devices that were supposed to make government more transparent and more accountable, to use the language of good governance today, um, actually made things less transparent and less accountable. So rather than thinking about how to deal with that fundamental problem, the tendency for the Vietnamese party state was to then add new forms of legibility devices to increase the amount of documentation uh, to sort through everything. And that perpetuated the cycle and on one hand created a structure that was reasonably robust, robust to enough to make it through the Vietnam War and the embargo years and natural disasters and so on, but never robust enough to make it really work, certainly in the way that it was envisioned. And it was this sort of lingering in-betweenness in which the administrative system, I would argue, limped along for decades. Um, that became fascinating to me. It led me to explore this question of illegibility, that is why things that are supposed to make it easier to see, to understand, to govern, and so forth, uh, quite often do the exact opposite. And that is where the title came from. And in the opening pages of the book, you also explain how you came to the topic, um, I wouldn't say by accident, but somewhat indirectly and perhaps unintentionally. So could you give some indication of that aspect of the research process before we move into some of the details. Well, of course, it's easy to laugh about now. <laughs> um, I had a uh, very difficult time getting my research off the ground, <clears throat> and it's something <clears throat> excuse me, I often share with, my, with the graduate students I work with, uh, that, that their obstacles are hardly unique to them. Um, I was originally hoping to do a study of uh, forced migration in Vietnam, uh, first in the north of the Dam Project, and I was pushed off of that. It was too political, and then the same thing for uh, urban migration in the south. And so I eventually settled upon a project that was going to look at decollectivization uh, in central Vietnam between an upland and lowland site because at the time I was really curious about the transition out of state so socialism or the purported transition. And I arranged to do the project through an international NGO, CARE International, which Fulbright had said was now permissible to have uh, an international organization. But when I went through the application process and re received my funding, everything was approved. 
except my sponsoring agency, Care International, uh, for what turned out to be political reasons. And I was told I had to get uh, a, a government agency to be my official sponsor, but that I could not travel to Vietnam to arrange that. So as you know, Nick, from your research, personal networks matter. We're simply writing or calling up saying, hi, will you take responsibility for me? It doesn't work very well. And I went through actually months of trying to locate a sponsor from afar. And in the end, I looked upon a Canadian group that was involved in a multi-university, multi-year project called Localized Poverty Reduction in Vietnam. And they were collaborating with five institutions of higher education in Vietnam around uh, the strategy of learning by doing, that is doing knowledge transfer and capacity building so that local university faculty and their students could develop participatory research skills and help drive bottom-up solutions to severe forms of localized poverty. Uh, so I was brought in with this arrangement to be able to work both on my own research but also to assist the project. And one of my first tasks was to go out and visit uh, faculty that were doing surveys, local household poverty surveys in a nearby province outside of Hanoi. Um, and I did, and I met with the students, as I explain in the book, uh, and provided them with uh, suggestions on how to make their research more robust, how to deal with respondents who, who they believe were lying to them, and so on and so forth, and then wrote uh, my field report back to my superiors, if you will. And in doing so, I inadvertently revealed that the faculty at this university were not doing the field research themselves, but they had outsourced it to the students who did not have sufficient training, it turns out, and they were keeping the money, their per diem payments for doing the research for themselves. Um, and that triggered a whole series of events, including an audit um, into what was going on, and it led to a rather large dispute about who gets to control what, be it in Canada, be it in Hanoi, be it in the field, who's in charge of what money, what kind of accounting procedures and so forth are required. And these patterns of uh, mistrust that are, I think, intrinsic to any collaborative effort, especially one of the size, first began to clue me in to what I called the government of mistrust because I was named a spy and was effectively banned from doing much of anything with this project. And I had to float around to uh, find what was, I think, my fourth or fifth project at this time. And in the course of trying to start up yet another one, I encountered many of these similar obstacles. People didn't want to take on the project. It was too sensitive. I couldn't get permits to travel to the countryside to do interviews. Uh, I couldn't get access to the archives, and on and on it went. And at some point, and I don't exactly remember when, I realized these obstacles, as I mentioned in the book, um, had become the subject matter of my research because they were not unique to me. These were the kinds of difficulties people in their everyday lives face when they have to interact with one bureaucracy or another. And I then began to shift my uh, analytical focus to how these obstacles emerge historically, what was done in response to them, and how people managed or coped in an environment where uh, 
mistrust was the dominant feature of nearly every aspect of their life. And briefly, your research focuses on the Red River Delta. Why is it that you ended up in that particular location for your fieldwork? Um, the Red River Delta is the is often described as the cradle of Vietnamese civilization, that is, the ethnic Vietnamese in community. Um, and it was the area most heavily uh, sinicized over the centuries. So there's some very interesting uh, administrative or political administrative overlaps between the Vietnamese system and the Chinese system, in addition to cultural beliefs and practices. It was also the area that was the primary rice-producing site for the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, in northern Vietnam. Uh, it was also located in the low-lying plains that largely surrounded the capital. Uh, transportation networks were not uh, too bad. Uh, communication networks were not too bad. And so it seemed like an ideal site to say, okay, if the socialist state uh, was going to have its greatest impact, where would it be? And uh, conceivably, it should have been the Red River Delta for all those reasons. High population density, small area, strategic importance uh, for food security in particular, uh, and accessible uh, by central-level uh, officials. And so that became uh, the natural site for me to choose and to, to look at to an ethnography of the state to see it in a more regional perspective rather than a site-specific perspective. You, you do describe the field as, a, in one sense, geographic. We've just covered that ground, so to speak. You also say it is conceptual. So I think that leads us back to the point you were making earlier on about legibility devices. Uh, around which you structure the contents of the book. Could you please tell us a bit about these legibility devices that you're working with throughout the text? Sure, I'd be happy to. <clears throat> Part of what I meant by conceptual field is that my primary discipline is uh, anthropology. And anthropology as a discipline has undergone some major changes over the last 20 or 30 years, one of which has been to move away from the classic village-based local study. Um, and I was trained at a place, the University of Michigan, where there was a strong emphasis on bringing the disciplines of anthropology and history into productive conversation with one another. So from the very start, my hope was several fold. One, to work in archives and bring together my qualitative research data with uh, different forms of documentation, particularly government documents, but not exclusively. Next was I was interested in doing an ethnography of state socialism. So taking the, uh, whatever this thing is that we call the state as the uh, object of analysis, or at least the domain in which I would explore the government of mistrust, rather than looking at one or two villages in the Red River Delta. So I had a broad geographic focus, but was really trying to understand how the uh, state agents, uh, particularly low-level cadres at the commune level, 
um, understood their jobs and how they carried them out. And as I explain in the book, these low-level cadres occupy a very unusual structural location in that they are the lowest level of the administrative hierarchy, but they are appointed and work in the communes in which they live. They're not posted from somewhere else. So they remain firmly embedded in relations of kith and kin at the local level, um, but they also have their professional obligations to their administrative superiors. So they're really in some ways caught between competing demands. And I was interested first and foremost in how they tried to uh, manage and negotiate those demands, uh, which sometimes aligned, but many times did not. Um, and so one of the things I found by tracking the, uh, the creation of this low-level administrative class um, and tracing uh, them forward uh, to the present-day time, I developed a periodization that I looked at what I called the pre-centralization of documentation that began in the late 19th moment that some people would call the period of revolutionary mobilization, that it was the emergence of a proto-state in areas controlled by the Viet Minh and later the Communist Party, and then the gradual creation of administrative structure in these liberated areas on up until 1954 when the country was partitioned after the Geneva Accords. Um, the second period concerned the centralization of documentation, and that ran from about the early 1960s until the mid-1980s. And that was really sort of the high point of the centralized command and control administrative socialist state in which there was a very robust uh, structure for guiding uh, how the governing documents, circulars, directives, decisions, <clears throat> excuse me, should be implemented at the local level and, of course, why they did not always happen that way. And finally, the para-centralization of documentation. And I use para to talk about the ways in which previous forms remained in play uh, and then were mixed with market mechanisms for governance. So the key point, and then I'll talk about the legibility devices more particularly, was that you don't have a clear transition from a revolutionary period to a socialist period to a late or post-socialist period, um, but rather the forms of government used to administer the countryside were carried forward and there were new layers put on top of them, new forms of documentation. So it was this process of accretion or accretion, if you will. Um, and that is one of the reasons why you cannot take or use a linear narrative to understand the so-called rise and fall of the socialist state. Um, because it simply, there's far more continuity than rupture. So to do this, I look at in the six chapters, six different kinds of legibility devices. And a legibility device comes from the work of John Law, a science and technology study person. Um, he's a sociologist based in England. Uh, he did not use that term. Instead, he proposed a triad. And he was very interested in how uh, a small country like Portugal could create and maintain an empire consisting of 53 colonies around the world and do so for 400 years. 
And he made a claim that were, there were at minimum three things that needed to be in place. One, uh, trained people. They had to have particular skill sets. Two, they needed certain devices. And third, they needed uh, certain kinds of documentation. So he used the example of a uh, Portuguese ship. And for Portuguese ships to sail broadly around the world rather than hug the coast, they needed to develop the Australab that would allow them to determine their precise location, their longitude and latitude, regardless of where they were. And that enabled people to sail across the oceans and to develop maps charting their their course uh, in ways that was previously not imaginable. And the training that came from using the maps and the Australade allowed sailors who had never, ever traveled to these particular places before to find their way and, importantly, find their way back um, without having to have been led through the experience. They could do it on their own. So he takes this argument and develops it in a different way. I adopt it and say, okay, if you want to have local administration or some sort of administrative hierarchy that functions across time and space, you need three things. You need disciplined or trained people. You need certain kinds of documentation, a la James Scott, to move in different nodes where decisions are made. And you need devices. And the six I use um, are first in chapter one, the call and response dialogues. This was an oral form of producing and checking information because so many of the people, about 90% of the population was illiterate at the time. And then the emergence of field reports by this new class of revolutionary cadres that emerged in the 1950s. So this is a period of rapid change, mass campaigns, revolutionary mobilization. And what became the socialist state was really trying to figure out how to incorporate far-flung rural populations into a coherent administrative structure. During the rise of bureaucratic professionalism, in which there was the development and increasing emphasis on technocratic forms of administration, there was the creation of standardized administrative templates, which took the very fascinating locally placed ethnographic information that was in the field reports and began to standardize it into uh, uh, stationary, if you will, that was very strictly formatted and dramatically cut out uh, all the local information and replaced it largely with numbers. And that uh, made things countable. It made it possible for administrators to compare progress or lack thereof across sites, across cooperatives, for example. But it really made their decision-making more difficult because they no longer had a window into what was happening in local areas. So the very device that was supposed to make the countryside more legible became increasingly illegible to them. In response to that, they developed this uh, device called labor contracts for use on the agricultural cooperatives. And the basic point of that was to, again, standardize the value of labor and assign different points to the kind of task performed. 
and cooperative members would accumulate certain numbers of points, and over a harvest or over a year, their points would entitle them to a certain share of the harvest. But that kind of, again, effort to make the specific contributions of people working in a collective more transparent and increase accountability helped engender a wide range of ways of gaming the system, if you will. Because this gaming of the system was not limited to the individual actions of, co of a cooperative, but often entailed the cooperative as a whole, or certainly the low-level officials administering it, the central government developed what was the fifth form of the fifth type of legibility device I discuss, and that was performance audits. Uh, and they created a special class of auditors who did inspection trips and would try to determine what, if any, difference or gap there was between what was reported and what was actually happening. And again, the strategies that emerged uh, amongst all those involved to manage these kinds of inspections. And then finally, the sixth chapter, which looks at what happened after the introduction of market-based reforms in the 1980s and 1990s with the goal of reasserting control, law, and order in the countryside that had uh, really fractured with rapid decollectivization. The old order was largely broken, but a new one of administering it had not emerged and they created, again, another national system called village conventions, which sought to balance local demands for some administrative decision-making control with that of their superiors at the province and central level. And again, uh, how these then turned into ways of uh, advancing one's interests. And as you can see through this very schematic presentation, uh, each layer of documentation was premised on distrust about the quality and accuracy of the information that was flowing up and down through different branches of the administrative structure. And that is part of the government of mistrust. How do you govern when you have little to no confidence that any of the material you have to work with in, in, in order to make the decisions you need to carry out one's job are accurate? are truthful, uh, and so on. So that's, that's how the book is structured with each device, uh, being the focus of each of the six main chapters. You've given us a really thorough overview of the book and the organization of material and this question that you've raised at the end about how, uh, how do you govern with um, a condition of partial legibility or indeed illegibility is one that we now, I think, need to track across the chapters in more detail. So perhaps we can return to that first period, the pre-centralization of documentation period, which you describe as a period of revolutionary mobilization. Can you talk through the devices in that period a little bit more and perhaps contextualize them as well, situating them in the um, the context of the, the war that was going on at the time and the concerns to mobilize, mobilize the populace that you describe in these two chapters of the book and perhaps also describe briefly um, how and why the shift is made from 
call and response dialogues, which as the term indicates, are primarily oral towards increasingly the use of documentation through field reports? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, one of the things uh, that I do at the start of the chapter um, that uh, maybe is a little or unorthodox is that uh, I try to trace through, and this is uh, the case in all the chapters, to challenge the existing periodization of what began when and what connects to, to what. And I argue that if you want to understand why the mass campaigns took the form they did in the 1950s during the height of the first Indochina war, you need to go back to the 1920s, which was a period in which the sort of first generation of communist um, or socialist organizers began their work. And that was primarily in urban areas. Uh, they went in and tried to organize people, m most of whom came from the countryside on a seasonal basis to help uh, generate cash income to pay their taxes to the French, uh, were working in factories or working on plantations. And this early generation, uh, which had borrowed Chinese and Japanese models, said, we, in order to mobilize the masses, we need to get closer to them. And the model they used was this idea of emulation. That is, by acting outwardly in a particular way, it would lead to an inner transformation. So what you had were largely middle class or elite Vietnamese, uh, some of whom had been trained in France where they were first exposed to different strains of Marxism going in undercover and working in factories, working on plantations and gaining firsthand experience of the forms of exploitation these workers had to endure on a daily basis. And since these workers were almost entirely illiterate, they drew upon oral forms uh, for communicating ideas, poetry, songs, in some cases, plays, which were all done on a clandestine basis. And the central feature of that is call and response, in which someone would utter a particular phrase, often a couplet from a poem, with the words changed, but the rhythm was a traditional one. People could connect with it. And then the workers would respond back with the appropriate response. And that was used as a way to raise ideological consciousness about the mechanisms of exploitation, the need for solidarity amongst workers, um, what revolution would bring in terms of uh, uh, freedom from exploitation, equality, and so on and so forth. And the goal was to get the people, the workers in a factory, for example, to the point that these dialogues would actually prompt revolutionary action, such as a strike. Um, and they had very, very, very limited success in doing that for a variety of reasons, but one of which was that the organizers themselves uh, weren't very good, that they had a hard time broaching the class differences that distinguished them from the workers themselves. And this sort of model uh, gradually disappeared by the early 1930s, in large part because of infighting between a half dozen different communist Trotskyite 
um, anarchist movements and uh, was sort of set aside until the 1950s in which emulation became a key way for uh, the communist and its armed uh, uh, coalition, the Viet Minh, to mobilize people in the countryside to provide food and labor for the war effort, but also to begin uh, what came to be known as the land reforms, which was heavily modeled off uh, the Chinese experience. In fact, there were Chinese advisors who came in to train the early land reform uh, mobilizers. And the model was the same, but with a couple important differences. First being, this was being carried out in rural settings rather than urban settings. So they were dealing primarily with uh, what they regarded to be uh, landlords, but also members of other des- undesirable categories. And they had to mobilize rural populations to get over their fear of retribution, which was very real, uh, to come together and arrest uh, landlords, uh, try them in front of uh, people's courts, and then either execute them or exile them or jail them, uh, what have you. So I focus on the ways in which the land reform mobilizers went out and used the very same form, call and response dialogues, to raise class consciousness about the need for a radical transformation of land tenure arrangements in the countryside. And again, the problems that ensued with that um, led to action without planning. It created uh, chaos in the countryside that threatened to undermine the war effort against the French and its sympathizers because it was carried out concurrently. Um, But also, it largely wiped out the existing administrative class, the limited number of literate uh, mandarins uh, and civil servants working under the French who actually had numeracy, who actually knew how to read, who understood what it was to administrate. And so with that class gone, you have this need, which I explore in the second chapter, to somehow train the people who were promoted into positions of administrative power. And that tended to be the poorest, the most marginalized, the least educated members of the rural uh, population who had taken a leading role in implementing the land reforms in their own locales. So how do you govern with people who can't count, who can't read, who can't write? And you get a whole series of paradoxes in some cases Uh, landlords who survived, who were not executed, were brought in as advisors to help the very people who persecuted them uh, write reports. And so you begin to see at this early stage an effort by the administrative center in Hanoi to create uh, a standardized report format and a standardized reporting system that said people in the countryside, specifically commune level Um, administrators, what information was desired? How should you collect it? How should you compile it? 
how should you, if possible, analyze it and then represent it to the district, provincial, and central level uh, officials so there was sufficient legibility for them to make policy decisions um, to modify them where they deemed appropriate and then transmit instructions back down the line. Uh, so I trace uh, the complications with that process and the reemergence of middle peasants who had some education, who were fairly to very successful farmers, who quickly realized that although they had been marginalized during the land reforms, they had an opportunity to expand their influence and increase their human security by reinserting themselves into administrative positions. So within a few several years, uh, you had sharp conflict between the revolutionary cadres um, who had revolutionary ardor for the task, but none of the skill set, and people who had skill sets, but who may or may not have shared the same economic goals as the government itself that was increasingly moving towards uh, collectivization. And one of the things I argue in the book that the rapid move to collectivization was in significant part motivated by the desire to, uh, to reassert control over these middle peasants who were arguably re- reviving certain forms of capitalism in the countryside. So that uh, is a long-winded answer to your question that brings together chapters one and chapters two, which are really in conversation with one another. You have to read them as, as sort of a, a long or connected uh, argument. Before we turn to the next period, what were the exemplary and deviant categories that form part of the discussion in that first period? Great question, and it was one of the things I enjoyed most about working through uh, uh, the archival information and trying to make sense of what I saw. And you had this, because of these changes and the lack of clarity of who was in charge and what kinds of goals were to be implemented, and that's one of the reasons why I argued the uh, socialist party state could be strong and weak in the same places. Some branches of government uh, were quite good and quite strong in terms of administration and achieving the goals set out for them. Others were weak and still complicating the situation further were the low-level cadres who were being given conflicting orders by different segments of the state. And so that contributed to different forms of uh, conflict management. I have to do A by deadline X. I have to do B by deadline Y. And they're requiring me to uh, engage in conflicting activities. And in the course of doing so, it became really ambiguous what kinds of behavior were exemplary, that is, they were emulating the ideals of the party state at that particular moment in time, and what kinds of behaviors were deviant that were actually undermining the efforts to rebuild the economy uh, during or in the wake of the land reforms, which uh, severely damaged the ability of the center to collect enough food to maintain itself. 
um, because production was sidelined by, by the land reforms. So I trace through these different ways in which people uh, develop strategies to, on one hand, appear as if they were doing what was being asked of them in terms of contributing labor and contributing rice, at the same time trying to serve their own interests and how that fed particular forms of mistrust. These forms of mistrust appeared quite clearly in the field reports, uh, and that's what made them so fascinating to read, and that is also what contributed to what I talk about uh, during the centralization of documentation, which is the creation of standardized administrative templates. So let's turn to that period now. You already mentioned that there's a certain amount of standardization in the field reporting process. Nevertheless, these were still narrative reports, so presumably they still enabled their authors to uh, include and omit uh, contents with a certain amount of discretion, whereas uh, with the centralization of documentation um, and this period you class as having a, an approach which is bureaucratic professionalism, we see the emergence of templates, contracts, and audits, all terms that suggest uh, a much greater degree of rigidity and bureaucratization of practice. So kindly talk us through one or two features of that period as well. Sure. So what you're seeing at a, uh, at a, from a very high level or meta level is an increasing shift away from uh, Chinese models of revolutionary mobilization to more Soviet-influenced models that said uh, in order to consolidate uh, party-state power in the countryside, in order to achieve our goals of uh, using agricultural production to subsidize industrial production, which is really uh, the desired endpoint at this particular moment in time, you need to get more scientific. And this was the uh, training of technocrats, many of them who actually went to the Soviet Union and studied how to, uh, they took management courses related to uh, different aspects of agricultural and industrial production and came back to implement uh, new controls as part of the creation of a centralized command economy in which the center dictated which parts of the economy were to produce what, uh, how they were transferred to the center to be redistributed throughout the countryside. And that was the key means by which uh, centralized control was uh, exerted in the countryside with very mixed success. In part, I argue, because the information they needed to do that um, was sometimes falsified was quite often inaccurate. It was frequently late. And the kind of information they sought was not necessarily re relevant to what they needed to know in order to administer the countryside from Hanoi. So the legibility device, <coughs> excuse me, they first introduced were the administrative templates. And that was, as I mentioned earlier, fundamentally organized around quantitative data because that was seen to be inherently more objective, more scientific, 
the assumption was low-level cadres who had low levels of education were capable of counting. They could add up production levels. They could count up the uh, numbers of bushels produced, the numbers of chickens raised, and that would serve as a proxy for the progress being made towards creating a collective economy. So those long narrative reports, the field reports, um, all that information dropped out, and what you got was increasingly vague bureaucratic language that used uh, the discourse of the time, Soviet-inspired economic discourse, without really revealing anything of importance. And the numbers, as they quickly discovered, could easily be falsified, more easily than the long narrative reports, which actually gave uh, quite a bit of insight into what was happening locally. Uh, so you went from a field report that might be a monthly field report that might be 20, 25 pages long, which was fascinating, but also took a lot of time to write and a lot of time to read, to an administrative template that may have been uh, requesting information on a monthly or weekly basis that only contained two to three pages of information. Some of it was boilerplate. And then there was a section for uh, statistics, what was happening with different sectors of the rural economy. And the top-down specification of what kinds of information was to be valued enabled the state quite obviously to see certain things in a limited way, but it devalued or sidelined all the other contextual information that was actually needed to make good policy decisions. And as a result, the very scientific methods used to manage things more effectively in the countryside actually undermined that very goal. What was the tension between reform from below and reform from above? Great question, and it is a long-running and in some ways still unresolved debate. Um, it reflects shifts in the literature, the scholarly literature, that was tied in many ways to shifts from a Cold War paradigm to uh, the emergence of resistance studies. Uh, first in political science, but then other disciplines. So those scholars that were trained and were studying what was happening in the 60s and 70s and to a certain extent in the 80s in Vietnam were heavily influenced by this notion of a totalitarian state in which the centralized government uh, was really able to uh, enforce its will. And there was very little movement or sorry room for negotiation at the bottom level some of course happened but really the center could dictate what was happening in the periphery with the rise of uh, uh, peasant studies and resistance studies there was a nice corrective in terms of looking at more closely what was happening at the bottom level at the grassroots level and the extent to which there was room for them to exercise agency in the face of efforts by the center to control what was happening in the periphery. And that in part uh, in the 80s, but especially the 90s during the heyday of such studies, it marked the moment in which people 
first began to be able to go to the countryside and actually interview people to learn about uh, their experiences. So it created a nice corrective. It also contributed to a fairly rigid binary in which people of different gen uh, academic generations argued back and forth about which was the primary driver of reform in Vietnam. I argue, and there are some people who share my view, but I really try to demonstrate uh, the extent to which both were going on and why that resulted in some of the contradictions that both undermine the ability of the socialist state to maintain control politically, economically, and culturally in the, in the countryside, yet enabled it to retain sufficient authority that socialism did not collapse in the way it did in the late 80s and early 1990s in Europe in particular. So let's turn to the remaining uh, periods, the paracentralization of documentation, and you describe this period as having the approach of socialist marketization. Uh, what was the socialist marketization, or, or indeed what is socialist marketization all about, and how do the developments in Vietnam relate to those in China, and how does civilization figure in this story? Mm -hmm. um, as most people are aware, the gradual introduction of market me mechanisms into the Chinese uh, economy uh, had a profound effect on the everyday relations of uh, uh, the countryside, if you will, to the urban center. Uh, the Vietnamese uh, decision-makers, the elites, watched those changes, and there was sharp disagreement as to whether Vietnam should follow suit or uh, maintain their commitment to a socialist style, uh, a path of uh, national development. And gradually, con uh, conditions in the countryside uh, reached the point that people were initiating these changes to the collective uh, agricultural economy anyway. And the center really struggled to get ahead and provide some guidance to control which direction they went. They wanted to avoid, and I think they were to a certain extent successful in keeping the entire rural economy from collapsing on itself. Uh, so the notion of socialist marketization was to maintain as much as possible state control of uh, the economy through state-owned enterprises, but allow in a very, very limited way scope for individual households to have uh, greater decision-making uh, uh, power over what they grew, where they grew it, their ability to sell it uh, increasingly at market rates, what portion of that still had to be uh, given to the state for redistribution and what percentages they were allowed to keep for themselves. So it was fundamentally seen as a way of increasing agricultural production, but without allowing market forces to completely transform uh, socioeconomic relations in the countryside and thus the ability of the center to administer from afar.
And so the concept that emerged nationally was this notion of guided self-regulation. The guided part refers to the uh, one of the central organizing principles by which the center uh, provided instructions about what was desired, and the role of the periphery was to emulate them. It was to follow them. Um, and that was the space or opening in which the bottom-up change that some scholars emphasize uh, first emerged. What I argue is that is certainly the case. There is overwhelming evidence to support that. But what tends to get underemphasized in that argument are the ways in which the party state really uh, struggled and in many cases succeeded to then get ahead of these bottom-up changes and maintain a certain degree of control and uh, ability to direct in what ways these changes were going to unfold. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, on the countryside, there was a fair amount of chaos, including violence, as people began to, uh, of their own accord, um, exit agricultural cooperatives and make property claims, often to the most productive agricultural land, which increasingly marginalized the most vulnerable populations, such as war widows or families with a lot of dependents, uh, which had limited ability to uh, limited labor power. Uh, to meet their obligations because people still had contracts with the government that had to be honored. Uh, and so those communities or those vulnerable populations quickly found themselves landless. And many of them uh, were destitute and there had to be special programs to support them. And many of them eventually migrated into the cities, which caused its own problems. So to deal with this, to deal with the chaos, uh, to deal with the kinds of ruthless behavior that increasingly dominated rural areas, you began to see this reassertion of the need for uh, collective values, but ones that were tied and often in the romanticized way back to the pre-colonial period in which there were uh, clear hierarchies um, that were often reinforced through ritual action, um, but one in which people knew their respective places. And so you see the uh, resurgence of Confucian rituals. Um, you see uh, feast culture and other activities that, in some cases, the state said were okay as long as they did not seem to have political implications. And so one of the key forms that emerged was this notion of being civilized, recovering timeless values, as I said, romanticizing the past as a way of reasserting law and order in a setting in which the state was clearly unable to police the countryside and maintain that law and order entirely on its own. Population growth certainly played an instrumental role in that. There were simply too many people. Um, but the effort to create conventions, which are really sort of charters that set out a decision-making structure um, for adjudicating conflicting claims, what forms of behavior vis-a-vis -vis the individual and the collective were acceptable, what kinds of fines or other kinds of uh, 
punishments would be met out to people who didn't respect those rules uh, quickly caused alarm uh, because they were often quite harsh. They were not consistent with national laws and policies. So the guided self-regulation, uh, the guided part was the effort of the nation, sorry, the party state to really set out national templates again uh, for people to emulate certain practices. And if they met certain national policy goals, they did not have more than two children. Uh, their children remained in school to a certain amount of years. Literacy rates in a village increased. You would get a designation of uh, being a civilized village. And that was a real status marker for a period of time because it allowed them to access certain benefits. This then trickled down to the notion of a cultured household, which again reflects the introduction of market ideas and the ability of households or the desire of households to distinguish themselves from others as being higher status, more sophisticated, more worldly, and more civilized than their neighbors per se. So it was the introduction of competition, but also competition as constrained by or within a national framework uh, for designating or promoting the increase in cultural levels across the countryside um, through education, through public health, through access to mass media and so on and so forth. And that uh, was not done all on its own, but it was incorporated um, or linked with the very kinds of centralized documentation we just spoke about, administrative templates, contracts, and audits, but in a different sector of life. Okay, in this we began our conversation at the conclusion of the book, it seems only right to end in the introduction. Uh, in the opening page of the book, you say, referring to Annalise Ryle's work, that, that despite her work and that of some other scholars, documents remain largely untheorized, even though they mediate much of what we know about the world. Um, by way of a, a closing observation, what do you think your own work has contributed towards um, the theorizing of documents or perhaps the processes of documentation with which you're concerned in Vietnam? Um, another great question and one that I'm going to struggle a bit to answer. Um, I think several things, but one of the ones I wanted to emphasize first is that Riles and others make a very significant contribution in this uh, emerging area of scholarship. But they tend to focus, at least uh, until recently, and Matthew Hall's recent book um, is, is a notable example of that, on documents. They took specific examples and did case study analyses. And that makes perfect sense. I'm in no way uh, downplaying their achievements. It was really they were uh, opening up a new area of inquiry and doing so through close attention to marriage certificates or warrants and other kinds of documents within a specific context. What I really try to do with this is shift, although I have a lot of discussion of documents 
uh, how they're designed, how they're used, how people misuse them, and so on, to the process of documentation. And that brings me back to the John Law's point about needing discipline that is trained people. You need certain devices, six of which I featured, uh, and administrative procedures to de- set out in advance what kinds of information are desired, how are they to be collected, how are they to be analyzed, how are they to be disseminated, and finally, how are they to be archived and made available for future reference. So I took that process as the focus of the book and tried to trace through on a very large scale through the Red River Delta and as using that as a way of talking about state socialism more generally, um, what this looked like across a rather large sweep of time from the late 1920s to uh, the present and the importance of seeing these processes of documentation as part of a larger suite uh, of actions uh, designed to govern the countryside rather than looking at one, two, three, and so on is largely separate. I trace and I think, or I hope convincingly so how those of the past continued forward and were forced sometimes successfully, sometimes not by the state and by lower level cadres to interact with one another. So you don't really find one or the other legibility device in one place, but you find multiple ones. And that's what was of great interest to me in terms of how people negotiated uh, conflicting demands on them, uh, especially through mass campaigns to raise production, but also uh, what kinds of information were they willing to disclose? What kinds of information did they wish to retain? And what were the responses of high-level administrators to this, uh, to these strategies, especially at the lower level of administration, but this was also true at the district level and provincial level. It was systematic, it was endemic, it was pervasive, and it led to what I call the government of mistrust. We are out of time, but before we close, I, I do very much want to ask you a traditional ending question, which is, Uh, What have you been working on since the government of mistrust and what can we look forward to next? Mm -hmm. Um, Some radically different subjects. Uh, Like many people, when they finish a book, they set it aside and don't look at it for a long period of time. And I'm grateful for this conversation, which prompted me to go back and uh, revisit uh, my claims. And it was nice to see that I largely still subscribe to them. Um, I'm working on uh, two main projects or large-scale projects at the moment. Um, I have off and on written about the territorial disputes between Vietnam and China, uh, and I'm doing more so on that with their disputes in the South China Sea and the kinds of infrastructure development that are being carried out in areas in disputed areas and the implications that has particularly on the Vietnamese side for resurgent forms of maritime nationalism, uh, free speech efforts or conflicting efforts by the government to support these expressions of nationalism on the one hand, but not let them get out of control 
on the other because of the role China plays in the national economy and the regional security um, uh, throughout the South China Sea and other neighboring states. Um, also, uh, do work on Burma, as you know, or Myanmar. And I'm involved in a multi-year project looking at the creation of human rights archives and human rights fact production and the ways in which those facts about specific forms of human rights violations, uh, especially those related to crimes against humanity, um, are produced, disseminated, and then acted upon at the international, national, and local levels. Well, Ken McLean, um, we are very grateful to you also for speaking today about your book, The Government of Mistrust, Legibility and Bureaucratic Power in Socialist Vietnam. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everybody for listening. I look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian Studies. And as Marshall Poe says, if you've enjoyed the interview and like what the New Books Network is doing, please consider making a small donation or purchasing your books online via the Amazon link on the website. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.